Hi, everyone. We can't wait to bring you the episode on substance use disorder and recovery. I'm really glad that we welcomed on Cheryl Cambay, Colleen Capistrano, and Russell Ramirez. Cheryl and Colleen bring such a wealth of experience and knowledge from being in the substance use disorder and recovery industry for years. And you'll see that Russell also has a special addition in really bringing in his own experiences having gone through substance use and coming out with a successful recovery. So we'll dive in to talk to you all about what is considered a substance use disorder. How can you or your loved ones seek treatment? What does that look like out there? What are the underlying issues that really get to the bottom or underneath the substance use disorder. And really, let's look at how we can help our community in rising through and above this disorder as it plagues many of our loved ones within our community. Hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Season 3 of Philippine X in Wellness. I'm your host, Cheryl Sampson Ramirez. Following our last episode on estate planning and financial wellness with this Filipino-American life and guest Marvel Zielcita, this month we're featuring guests Cheryl Cambay, Colleen Capistrano, and Russell Ramirez to talk with us about substance use disorder and recovery. The flyer in the last episode said substance abuse, but... We are now changing it to substance use disorder, and we'll go into why. As mentioned in previous episodes, all views discussed are for informational and educational purposes only. It's not meant to be medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare practitioner for your particular condition, especially before starting ex- any exercise or new health program. For this episode, I'd like to welcome our guests, Cheryl Cambay, Colleen Capistrano, and Russell Ramirez. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Hi. Hello. With all our guests, we like to open with our ancestral lineages. Where are your families from in the Philippines, and where are you currently streaming from? So, Cheryl, we'll start with you. Great. I like your name, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Spelled correctly, too. (laughs) Hi, everybody. So, my name's Cheryl. Um, My mom is from... San Fernando La Union, although my gra- my maternal grandfather is full Chinese. He um, raised his kids, got married in, in the Philippines. And then my um, dad, he is from, his family is from um, Pangasinan by way of Manila. So he was, he's a city boy, grew up in the city, but they did come from Pangasinan. And then I am streaming from the LBC, Long Beach, California. So... Colleen, what about you? Hey, um, my family is from Mandaluyong, Metro Manila, um, by way of Binyang. My mom is from Binyang, and my dad is from um, the La Union area as well. So, um, northern part of the Philippines, but they were both raised, born and raised in um, Mandaluyong. 
Do your parents know each other? Did you check? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. They met actually early on in. Uh, I meant um, Colleen and because uh, oh. uh, yeah, or did, Colleen is a big area actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but our our her dad, my my mom are Ilocano. So yeah. Oh, cool, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm from Long Beach, LBC. Yeah. Sweet. Well. Nice. What about you, Russell? Uh, my dad is from San Juan Batangas, and my mom is from Ilocos Norte, uh, near Marcos country. And um, and oddly enough, my grandmother was born and raised in Hawaii. Um, and um, so my grandmother having actually being born in Hawaii before it became a state. So um, I think my parents found their way through the states, through Hawaii, and then getting to Los Angeles. And I'm streaming from Nordbridge. We did. Did we just see a thumbs up emoji pop on your screen? Yeah. Okay. I don't know how it works. <laughs> what? Well, I guess it. you're getting props, <laughs> digital props. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, now all of you are on this episode because, to a certain extent, you work within the realm of substance use disorders and recovery. Tell us about what you're doing right now. How many years have you worked in this industry and what events led you to this career path? I think, Colleen, let's go with you to start on this one. All right. Um, I've been in the field of behavioral health for the past 25 years, um, primarily with working with mental health, um, addiction, trauma, eating disorders, the whole gamut. Um, I have a background in psychology and child development, and I currently also own two supportive living homes, one uh, more psychiatric focused and the other one for trauma. So psychiatric supportive living and Athena house for trauma in the Encino area. Wow. That's a commute coming from Long Beach. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and what about you, Russell? Um, I actually have a very personal connection with our, with today's subject. Um, 2017, I got sober and, um, so that's how I found my way in the industry. After really digging deep and really, really like um, working hard on my sobriety, lo and behold, the treatment center that I got sober with hired me 13 months later. So um, that's how I found my way into this industry. I've been working at Tarzana Treatment Center for the past five years, loving the space that I'm working with. I get to give back to the community in a way that I never thought I would. And mm-hmm. with to a lot of people, in my, especially my family, and to people on this podcast who actually helped me get the help I needed. And um, I don't think I would be as comfortable. If you would have asked me if I were to be comfortable to talk about my experience, like maybe not in five, maybe four years ago, three years ago, I don't think I would have been as secure enough to talk about that space because as we all know, it takes time to heal. And um, and that's what allows me to actually be here and actually be upon beyond this podcast today. And what do you do for Tarzana Treatment Center? Oh, I'm a patient navigator. So uh, what I do is I link people to services. And um, it's a really good way of having to know more about my industry because you got to know about, I get get a lot of exposure to mental health, a lot of exposure to recovery services, plus um, exposure to testing and everything that's underneath my umbrella as an organization. And it's a really good way of getting to know where I fit best, especially in my community. And I really more identify with a lot of AA rooms, recovery rooms, 
and especially in the HIV um, recovery space. Awesome. What's your story, Cheryl? Yeah, so um, my story actually parallels Colleen's a lot. I've mm-hmm. um, been in the industry 25 years. I graduated with an undergraduate degree in sociology, thinking I was going to be a therapist. Um, so my first job in the industry was in direct client care. Um, and then about 20, I think it's 20 years ago, um, got into outreach and marketing, which is representing um, programs in the community to generate business for the program. So um, I worked in a psych hospital at first for um, kind of doing community outreach. And then in the last, really the last now, um, since 2007, working for addiction treatment, addiction, trauma, mental health treatment. My background is in the areas of um, substance use disorder, eating disorders, trauma, sex and love addiction, um, some other process addictions. We'll go into those definitions. (laughs) Um, And I've been with my program, uh, Meadows Behavioral Healthcare, for the past 10 years doing outreach in the Los Angeles area. Nice. So originally when we titled this episode, we titled it Substance Abuse and Recovery. Um, but I, as we were working out the episode and trying to figure out how we wanted to title it, Substance Use Disorder became a more appropriate title. So maybe, Ken, Cheryl, let's start with you. Can you maybe start with explaining to our community, when does substance use become actually considered a disorder? And let's start with the definitions. Right. So um, in terms of the difference between use and abuse um, or when it becomes a disorder, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of criteria that's out there in um, some manuals that like the the diagnostic um, manual for disorders. And in that manual, substance use disorder is the more correct um, updated term versus substance abuse. Um, I think it's just more on a, in a clinical sense or medical sense, that's the more appropriate um, definition. Um, I would say, you know, in terms of figuring, because that's a really broad question, and I think all three of us probably have a lot to do, contribute to that question. Um, there's a lot of criteria that goes into when it becomes abuse. So somebody can use substances, but when it starts to become either pre, a preoccupation where um, maybe there's um, tr- efforts to try and stop. There could be urges um, to continue to use and use more and more. A lot of times, once tolerance starts to build up, you'll start to use it more um, because that it's not enough to get the um, head change or the high or the, um, the intoxication that you're looking for. Um, I would also say it. a lot of it has to do with when you start to see problems in your life. I mean, if, if we're going to talk in non-clinical terms, I think once there is some issues in your life where it's affecting relationships, it's affecting your job, perhaps, or you're not showing up for social events or um, maybe even isolating. A lot of times addiction really, really thrives in isolation. I would say that m- might be where there would be an abuse or a disorder issue. Um, it would still be up to going to either a clinician, a doctor to really figure out what's going on. But in terms of before you're reaching out for help, I would say some of that criteria, if you're kind of being honest with yourself about what's going on in your life, if it starts to interfere with your daily living and relationships, that's when it could be teetering on um, abuse. So that's sort of like a nutshell description that I would say. Um, the difference between abuse and and use. 
You've spoken like a true professional that's been in this field for a while. Would anyone want to add to that? Um, you know, you can also find, um, you know, kind of look at the DSM-4, and that's Diagnostic Statistical mm -hmm. um, Manual for Mental Disorders, and it's up to the DSM-5. It can give you criteria of, you know, what categorizes as addiction, but Cheryl nailed it. All the bulletin points about social uh, loss of control, uh, responsibilities, uh, and physical dependence. So mm -hmm. there's like four criterias to looking at when um, looking at addictive disorders. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a certain level of unmanageability, mm -hmm. and without unmanageability, whether recognized either by that person or um, people around them, and being responsive to that um, goes into play. But I think Cheryl's definition really hits it on the head when it comes to describing what that unmanageability could look like. All right. So what we're talking about here in this episode is when the substance interferes with your daily activities. Um, when it affects your relationship. So just to be clear, when we're talking about substance use disorder. Now let's talk about something maybe our community or a lot of parents out there uh, might be interested in knowing. When it com comes to the common drugs that, it, that your agencies are providing treatment for at this time, what does that look like? And Russell, since you're a Tarzana Treatment Center, Maybe if you want to take a stab and uh, start with what are the common drugs, you know, at your treatment center that you're providing treatment for at this time? Um, the drugs that come across when it comes to um, those who are seeking recovery services right yeah. now, um, fentanyl, um, laced anything. Um, mm -hmm. We have those who come in for alcohol and um, and combinations of so um, meaning we compound that with cocaine. We compound alcohol with other substances like crystal meth, um, using in various ways because with crystal meth can be done in so many different ways. Um, and then with the legalization of um, marijuana, everybody had some type of combination of dealing with um, using that too. Um, mm -hmm. And anything else? Um, I think those are the ones that come up to mind in the most intakes that I do for Tarzana Treatment Center. Oh, and opioids. Opioids is a big one. So fentanyl is mixed with a lot of other drugs that are out there. So we're seeing pretty much multiple substances when it comes to addiction. Yes. Yeah. Anyone want to add Cheryl or Colleen? Yeah, I would, um, you know, in the terms of the, the op opiates, that would be heroin. Those are those are drugs that are familiar to some people, street drugs, uh -huh. um, prescription medications, Things like um, that. I mean, sometimes that's not, that's not always looked at as something you could abuse because it's prescribed by a doctor and it has your name on the on the bottle. But if you're not using it in the right dosage or overusing it or using it in maladaptive ways, that would be considered abuse. So there's clients that come in that are using their Adderall inappropriately. That's for ADHD. Those are common medications that are used pain medications as well um, could be abused very easily because of the um, kind of the the numbing effects that it has. Um, I, I, I as a side note, and this could be a whole other podcast, but um, my tr the treatment center I work for also treats what I said earlier: process addictions. These are addictions that are not, or um, experiences, I should say, that are not really connected to a substance, but it could also be used addictively. That would be eating disorders. Um, uh, gambling is another one. We also treat something called sex addiction. That's not 
necessarily in the DSM at this point right now in terms of the diagnostic manual, but somebody can get into that space where they are, um, you know, kind of caught up in addictive patterns related to sex and problematic sexual abuse. I mean, or, or problematic sexual behaviors that could also include porn addiction, in internet use, gaming. Mm -hmm. These are things where it's not, it's something that we interact with in everyday life. And maybe may, you may or may not be able to be completely abstinent from it. So like eating, you can't not eat, you know, that's mm -hmm. not. So there has to be a healthy balance in what the recovery is going to look like on the other end for somebody using um, those the, those issues and experiences. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes you'll see certain uh, addictive behaviors or uh, process addictions um, combined with um, certain substances. Somebody who has an eating disorder sometimes uses Adderall. Um, mm -hmm. the appetite um somebody also marijuana is something that i frequently see in my treatment centers as well as um alcohol um and benzodiazepine so certain things you'll see coupled with certain um behaviors or addictive disorder other addictive disorders so you can like with methamphetamines and sex addiction that kind of goes hand in hand as well too you'll see that a lot in in certain communities so um you know the there's oftentimes a pairing with um, certain addictions and certain behaviors. Yeah. yeah. If I could also add just on the fentanyl mm -hmm. note, because that's really in the culture right now, it's in the media. This is something where people really need to be careful with because, mm -hmm. um, and it and I think it goes to where people are getting their street drugs. A lot of times whoever's selling those drugs are cutting them with fentanyl because it's a lot cheaper to sell. They make a little bit more money. When they're selling the cocaine, the heroin, whatever it is that they're mixing it with. Um, and fentanyl can kill. I mean, even just a little speck of fentanyl can kill somebody in a few minutes. So I always like to talk about Narcan and Naltrex, um, Naloxone, which is yeah. it's like I, the, my light's kind of weird, but it does look like a nasal spray. Okay. This, um, just in short, will block the receptor of where the opioid or where the fentanyl will attached to within the brain and the body that only it, it it doesn't block it completely it gives it just buys you time to call 911 so if somebody's overdosing they don't know what's in their drugs it could be fentanyl they're passed out if you do a, a one little spray it will mm -hmm. give whoever's rescuing the person time to call 911 to, to save their lives when you hear about accidental overdoses we've also heard a lot about celebrities that have used pain medications for a variety of issues like Prince, like um, there's a lot of singers, I think, that the accidental overdose, it's because of fentanyl. Right. Um, so I would strongly suggest for kids, people, you know, it to have this in your car, in your purse. I mean, it, it's 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 a crisis right now on our end in the industry where we're we're uh, dealing with high high levels of overdoses. Um, a lot of people are dying. Um the opioid crisis is real and we're fighting it on this end. But I would, as a service announcement, to be aware of what's in the drugs. And you mentioned Michael Jackson, Colleen? Or with propanol. So I'm yeah, there's a lot general, of yeah. propanol. So also I wanted to mention too, statistically, um, the last I heard it was like um, a 747 going down every seven minutes. And that's how many overdose deaths that we have in the, in, in the country. So oh that my is, gosh. it's definitely a, um, an epidemic um, and, you know, a battle that definitely needs a lot of attention and, um, you know, 
level spot on all ends. So um, it's it's a really scary thing out there. It's taking out a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, my agency over here at Tarzana, we use harm reduction processes, um, approaches. So, hey, if you know somebody or if one continues to want to continue to use, we offer fentanyl test strips for those who want to test their drugs out and to make sure that whatever ecstasy that they're using, whatever coke or whatever, um, whatever substance they're using, you could use these sub, um, these fentanyl test strips to test those drugs to see whether or not they are mixed with anything. Like anything, it's not foolproof, but we should give some peace of mind if one is going to continue to use or if one's going to continue to partake with people who continue to use. Having those test strips handy um, is being uh, it's being reported that in, even clubs in Pasadena and Hollywood are now testing fentanyl test strips over at clubs, at major clubs, so that in case somebody feels that their, um, their something is laced, they could actually test their drug, um, they could actually test their drug to see whether or not um, their drug, I mean, their cup has been laced with anything. So having to have these processes in order allows people to feel a little bit more secure and whatever they're going to continue doing. But at least we know that there's, um, there's, 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 there's ways people are trying to harm reduce anything that goes on. And I just want to also add that even includes um, clean needles. I can't tell you how much clean needles have been a game changer for those who need clean needle access. That, that includes um, not just heroin users, but those who continue to use dirty needles, dirty needles really um, adds to this co- really complicated issues when people don't know that clean needles are can be free and not, you just have the access to care necessary. And if you need um, resources in how to access that, I could um, gladly put the link in um, with you, Cheryl, so, um, so that people know where um, where, you, where we have um, needle exchanges for people to actually get clean needles and to dispose them. Okay. Hey, Cheryl, you mentioned the Narcan and then uh, the test strips and the clean needles. Are these things that you can buy over the counter or? Yes, you can get Narcan at like any drugstore. Mm-hmm. So, and, it, and it's oftentimes you can call organizations and get it for free as well, too. So yeah. it's accessible. Um, there's organizations that will train you how to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can add that to the resource um, page later. But definitely there are resources out there for for yeah. kids. Yes. So, so for those of the nurses in our community or those of the of the individuals that are emulating nurses and have the, your big mommy purses, Narcan might be something to add to that, right? Or mm-hmm. test strips. Or encouraging kiddos to carry Narcan too in high school. Yeah. That's how serious it is. it is. They're doing trainings for high school kids on on how to use Narcan. Yeah. So it's it's serious. Yeah. 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 We're just trying to save lives. Yeah, hear that. I'm curious, um, since you all work at different agencies and centers, I wanted to know a little bit more about the demographic that you're working with that is seeking treatment. So from what you've seen, you, we don't have to give like exact percentages or numbers. What is your demographic makeup of people that are seeking treatment? So let's maybe talk about age groups that you see, Um it's it's kind of a loaded question when you even look at like <laughs> substance uh, use disorder, um, gender identification, um, sexual identity, or even uh, race and ethnicity. I don't know if anyone has that information, but I, I'm just curious to know because I know Colleen uh, when you were talking about even um, sex uh, sex disorders, right, and methamphetamine, it made me. Re- uh, 
particularly in a, a specific community, it made me really think about demographics. So I don't know if anyone wants to take a uh, jump into this one. Well, there's a lot of different treat where treatment centers that address adolescents, there's adults. I mean, there are a growing amount of number of treatment centers, even in Southern California alone. Um, so, you know, you'll you'll have specific programs for adolescents. A lot, and there's a lot of good programs. Um, and then you'll have young adult programs, you know, 18 to 26, you know, that failure to launch demographic. And then you'll have um, programs for, you know, people older than that. So, uh, there are resources out there that can help certain age groups, and um, you know you'll you'll find that in in tr in the treatment world, it's 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 very common to have various amounts of uh, programs that address different issues, gender issues, um, different behaviors, and you know it's it's a close rabbit hole. So it's something that you ha uh, that you have to really be careful when choosing the right program, as Cheryl knows. I mean, there's there's a lot of good programs and, um, you know, so not so good programs as well, too, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I'll take a stab at it. Um, when I got sober in 2017, I had the opportunity to go into inpatient residential care um, to get treatment. And I can't, within the three months of me being inpatient, um, I could, I knew everybody's name. Because like when you're there for three months, you have nothing else to do but to really reflect and review and to be exposed to a community that is accessing care. And I took mental note. And when um, the number of Filipinos or Asians um, in, in maybe a war is outnumbered the number of Filipino nurses in there, um, you take note of like, um, you take note of that, like, who can I identify with? Um, who is Filipino, if not just Asian, in these communities. So, like, within those three months, I identified less than five, you know? And um, that's within 150 um, inpatient residents while I was there. So, um, when I got out, um, when I started getting more, um, more access towards, like, my community when I was in, um, tr um, trans um, what do you call it? Um, Transitional living, transitional living. <laughs> when I was in transitional living, then my um, then my outlook actually kind of broadened because now I was like meeting other people who are at other treatment centers who are now out, who are now um, and looking at those meeting rooms and stuff. Hey, there's a small percentage of Asians, if not Filipino Americans, or just Filipinos accessing these cares, and it bothered me actually while I was in there because I was like wondering what is keeping our community. From wanting to um, wanting to get to be in touch with um, themselves and finding recovery with them, themselves within these rooms, and um, and believe me when I when I go in these rooms, I uh, it, it's in the back of my head. I go like, oh, this guy's Filipino. Oh, this girl's Filipino, or they are Filipino. So like, um, so it's really nice to know that there is representation, but there's not a lot of us over there that identify enough to want to be um, to see that. That I know that our Filipino American community is really asking um, any of these outlets, whether AA rooms or CMA rooms or even just treatment centers in general. Um, and now that I'm behind the desk, and now that I'm taking a, um, a harder look at um, what I do, do being an outreach worker, um, it's interesting to see that you know, in the five years I've been working at Tarzana, I could I could say that there has to be under maybe a, just maybe under twenty five people that I've worked with personally 
um, trying to access care to to whatever capacity. And um, yeah, and that's just within the five years I've worked here. Perhaps my 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 co-panelists would have a different experience when it looks what it looks like whenever you've uh, met another Filipino. But um, that's within the five years I've working. That's been my experience. And I think um, well, go ahead, Carmen. I was just going to say, unfortunately, the access to care um, for mm-hmm. Filipino Americans or Filipinos and other Asian Americans is is very minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been working in treatment again in all levels of care, from hospitals to residentials to outpatient programs, and I can literally count how many Filipinos that I've seen in our um, you know intakes and going through get help and getting treatment. So Filipinos accessing care or treatment is very few and far between unfortunately yeah just to color that a little bit you know we us three work in inpatient level of care so that's another thing there's different levels of care that you can access recovery you can access substance use disorder treatment not everyone needs to go in to a hospital or a residential program because the um, the the truth of the matter is a lot of the treatment centers including mine are are not easily accessible uh, monetary wise, like it's, it, it is kind of expensive to come to the meadows in some of our programs. We do have other programs that take insurance, other levels of care that take insurance. I would say the majority of people that are seeking help in a higher level of care, meaning more than what you're doing in therapy or more than the the twelve step rooms, they're mostly an outpatient. They're not always an inpatient. I think inpatients really a small amount of people that are diving in, going away, needing to be away from their lives in a container is what we call it to really dig in and do some work on why they continue to use and how to stop using, not just stop using, but also the why um, so that they could try and stay sober. So in that sense, I think there are a lot of different um, levels of care that could be accessed by insurance. There are some programs that are nonprofit that raise money every year for people to to, to get to treatment. But um, there are a lot of treatment centers that it, it's it's difficult to get into because a lot of it's not covered by insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of a lot of the services that are provided, um, insurance doesn't say that they pay for it or it, it's just not included in what's called evidence based treatment. Um, I would also say when we first started in the field, um, Colleen and I would say because it's been 25 years, she's right. There wasn't a lot of people with in, in different ethnic backgrounds that were coming. I would probably say the majority of them, even the people that are going in to working in the field were um, white people, honestly, you know, um, the, mm-hmm. the, you know, that. But I think personally or just my opinion, just anecdotally, I think COVID and going through this global trauma of COVID has lifted that that stigma a little bit um, that it's brought more people to the door of treatment, not just inpatient treatment, but therapy, looking at mental health issues. It's more in the culture now. You know, we didn't use celebrities and people didn't used to talk about it on TV and in the culture about prioritizing mental health treatment. I see a lot more Filipino American um, therapists that are coming into the field Mm -hmm. to specifically work with our population. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're doing a lot more with educating our community our Filipino American community and Filipinos in general, that there is help outside of what we know, you know? So um, it's, there's still a lot of work to do. I mean, I get the question of, are there Spanish speaking treatment centers? You know, Mm -hmm. Colleen's got a colleague and partner who works for a treatment center in Mexico, but here in the States, that's few and far between. We're English speaking here, you know? Um, It's, it's interesting. I would say with, um, if we're looking at America, you know, the United States of America, we we're we're behind on a lot of, you know, we're not as old as some of the other countries in Europe or other parts of the world. But man, we're number one in treatment. 
We're number one in mythology. We're number one in the problems that we have. And a lot of people from around the world will come to the United States to get treatment because it's not available to them in, in countries that they come from. Yeah. Um, but I think it's getting better. You know, we're, we're, we're just broadening that a little bit more. It's all about education. It's all about also talking about shame. Sometimes shame will not bring people to pick up the phone and call. But if we're talking about addiction in general, I think hands down, everybody is affected by it. If it's not personal, if mm -hmm. a family member, a friend, mental health issues, it, it d doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what creed, color, whatever. It's going to, mm -hmm. there's someone's been affected by addiction and mental health issues for sure. Yeah. You all are hitting so many strong points. Colleen, were you about to say something more? So that culturally, even growing up, I mm -hmm. mean, for the message, you don't talk about your problems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that that was a, that is a big part of it is a shame. And you don't tell tell people about what's going on or your family secrets, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think that has been a big factor um, throughout the years of why Filipinos never sought treatment as well as the shame factor. You know? And what that does is it, it, it keeps those mental health problems going. You're not, you were taught not to talk about it. So then you're not talking about it. You're stuffing it down. And that just makes your mental health issues worse, really. Right. Um, if that's what the messaging is, you know, and the belief system is, you know, mm -hmm. so, yeah, yeah. And, you know, like, there's a big joke. I mean, like, um, what I realized when I was in treatment, and I shared this in one of the, um, in, in one of my shares, I said, the only reason why, um, like, when, like, okay, this is my story. Like, in 2014, I got sent back with a one-way ticket to the Philippines. And um, and it's because my parents knew I had a problem, right? We didn't talk about it. We didn't share about it. There was no, there was maybe a one month warning before this all happened. And my mom's last words were to tell me that I know you could figure it out. And she sent me to the Philippines, the one way ticket on my birthday, actually the day before my birthday, because when I landed, it was the 29th and my birthday had passed. So when I think about that trip, it was very memorable. So like, um, but when I was there, I realized that, gosh, dang, like the only people who get sent back to the Philippines when I was growing up were people who either got pregnant or if you got into a gang, right? But, uh, but to, deal with, um, to, de to deal with drug addiction or to deal with the problem, like this is something that continually goes on. And I believe like um, there was examples like, hey, we're not the only culture that sends people back to their home countries in order for them to, to figure it out. And I think Filipinos have a really, have a big way of having to tell their young people that they need to figure out some way. And sometimes it's on the one way plane ticket back. So. Yeah, there's a lot of internalization that happens in our country, right? And and oftentimes we see that manifesting in disorders, addictions, and even physical illness, right? So we're see, seeing I'm glad that you all are just on this episode to really talk about substance use disorder because this is just one of the areas that we need to talk about as a community when it comes to wellness and our health. Um, but even the just sweeping things under the rug, right, and relocating uh, individuals within our community, as you mentioned, Russell, we we also see how, for example, gang violence has increased in countries like in Central America when other communities have taken the same measures of of sending who they thought were problematic families back to their home countries. And now we're just seeing all these problems exacerbate when it comes to transnational experiences. So we're totally hitting it home. 
I want to circle back to some of the things that y'all have been talking about. I have some, so many things that I'm just taking in and and processing as you're sharing. I know, I know, Cheryl. Um, even when you were talking about how ins- most insurance doesn't cover um, treatment, I was just kind of resting on this thought of how there's so much money in illness, right, but not enough in being well in this country and just things that make you go, hmm. But Colleen, you were earlier talking about the relationship with alcohol and ben- benzo. I don't, uh, maybe if you could explain what that... Benzodiazepines. Yeah, I didn't know what that was. Maybe if you can... So, um, you know, you're looking at like the Ativans, you know, but these are some of the prescribed things that are mm-hmm. are given for like anxiety, um, you know, and, and things like that. So, um... Xanax. You know, sorry. <laughs> Yes, big one. Um, you know, all the diazepams, you know, okay. and a lot of them are like they're it's it's a prescribed drug, you know, that mm-hmm. is often abused because I think there's a correlation with emotional pain and physical pain as well, too. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times when people are using these painkillers or using these substances, they're they're really bearing or using it to to, you know, not feel and numb the pain, you know, that's actually really emotional mm. rather than just physical. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Cheryl, there was something I wanted to clarify um, with you when you were talking. You talked about the uh, 12-step program. Maybe mm-hmm. not many people might not know what that entails. What What is that? Yeah. So 12-step is one method. I think that um, somebody can get sober. It's really based on, um, it's, gosh, it's been around over 100 years. Okay. It's fellowship. It's... um. It's different. I mean, Russ might be able to answer this a little bit better than I can, but it is, um, there's a fellowship aspect to it. There's a spirituality aspect to it. It's working through different steps, 12 steps, um, to help stay, get and stay sober. A lot of it has to do with community. Um, A lot of it has to do a lot of inventory uh, on what your issues are. Um, And it's not like a religious, some people think it's religious because it does talk about a higher power, something that's more than yourself. Um, and by the way, I think spirituality is a huge part of recovery um, mm-hmm. and whatever. And that could mean anything to anybody. Um, mm-hmm. But the the 12 step, um, it's based on the big book. Um, it's it's really kind of like a, a it's, it's by design a way to get sober and stay sober. So I, I don't know if Russ wants to add to that because there is a lot of I mean, I'm I'm missing a lot because I, I'm myself is not I'm not in recovery. So um, but it is one method. It's not the only method, but it's mm-hmm. one that's been around for over 100 years. And there's meetings all over the world that you could access to be with other people that are struggling just like you or are in the the 12 step community. Yeah. Hey, those rooms have been around for a long time. And you're right, Cheryl, like um, what a or um any of the A's because there is Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. there's Crystal Meth Anonymous, there's um, Narcotics Anonymous, hey, there's even SLA, Sex and Love, um, Sex and Love Anonymous, whatever Anonymous you're part of, um, I'll choose the most um, popular one with AA, basically they have the big book. And um, when coupled with reading the big book and really deep diving into those steps um, with a sponsor whose job is to actually go through these steps with you and to work on one's inventory when one identifies it being an addict and surrendering to the process, um, people 
are able to change the way they think about themselves. And because like through this process, um, however quick or however long it takes some people find a different way of living. So um, being in those rooms provides community. It provides an opportunity for people to share. Um, it um, it provides a space for those who are allies, people who, I mean, who are there for support to go and celebrate their sobriety time. Hey, you know what? I have six years sober from Crystal Meth, and it's um, and I could not have gotten that time if I hadn't had the support from not just my family, but the friends and the fellowship that I had being in those rooms. So, um, and they make it fun. You know what? There's a there's an AA convention, a CMA convention that happens every year in Los Angeles. People go there, they get a chance to laugh at themselves and to actually rejoice in all the sobriety time, no matter how small, maybe 24 hours, but also to build up um, um, just a certain level of gratitude for the life that they can now be living because now they've lifted the veil of what it's like to no longer be captive to, um, to whatever addiction that they have. In addition to AE rooms, and um, we do have refuge recovery, we do have meditation practices that also offer different other outlets if AA doesn't seem to be the community a fit for that. So um, there's many other different um, processes and different approaches, but those are some of the that come to mind right now. I also want to give a quick shout out for Al-Anon, and those are for, you know, <laughs> those are for anybody who has, um, you know, in relationship with a loved one or somebody who's struggling with drugs, alcohol, or, um, you know, some type of addiction. So um, th that is support for for people who know somebody that um, is struggling with alcohol or addiction, and it's a way to take care of yourself. So, mm -hmm. um, and those meetings are everywhere as well, too. Yeah, everywhere, even virtually, too. So, like, really, there's a really good access to it. And you got to, I got to hand it to COVID. COVID blew, uh, blew it open when people still wanted to meet. They were able to meet on Zoom. So, there's really no, there's really no excuse not to feel like they could access some type of room for you to um, find support in because I guarantee you there's a Zoom link for any of those rooms when you do go to aa.org or like um, cma.org or cma.com so that you could access those links or even for Alan on too as well. Yeah, I would say 12-step rooms are probably... I mean, for most people, that's the way to get sober. Right? I mean, that or that was what was accessible to them because it's free. Um, they don't, I mean, not everyone has to go to inpatient. I have to really stress that because um, it's not, that's not the only way to, to find help, but it's like one addict helping another. That's really what it is because addiction is, is, you know, it, it fuels in the isolation and disconnection. But if you're connected to another human being, and that's also how therapy works too, when you're connected to somebody else that's seeing you for who you are. And connecting with you in a way that maybe that wasn't the case for you growing up or whatever. That's what helps people get into recovery is connections. So that the the rooms are really important for a lot of people and probably a, a, the best way to, to get sober where they don't have to go away somewhere, you know. So and it's free. You can literally Google it, look up the local meeting that's down the street from your house and um, show up and see how it goes, you know. Yeah. Right. Outpatient services actually do that too. So there are a lot mm -hmm. of places people can, um, if they want to deep dive in certain subjects like um, like trauma and addiction and different types of different types of areas and want to be in a small group environment to actually be with other people who are dealing with that and the privacy of having to deal with that, 
maybe outpatient might be a good opportunity for, um, for them to actually do that in that space where they need some type of interaction, but not too much interaction. So like um, it allows, there's a lot of um, spaces that offer that type of comparative versus having to deal with it um, in a big room, which can be very intimidating because some of these rooms can be anywhere from as small as like one or two people because you could still have a meeting with one or two people are present. But you know what? You, um, but these rooms can be as big as 100, 150, like Pacific Group, one of the most successful uh, successful groups out there that is um, during down meeting and the most, the biggest, I have the biggest AA group in, in all the world who are actually, um, who are actually having meetings of um, like 100 people and upward. So you got to find a fellowship that, that fit for you, but there's smaller meetings. You could, if one is desperate enough to find sobriety, they're going to get it if they really want it. And there's, um, and it, it's basically upon the community to really identify those and welcome them in whenever they do walk in through those doors. You said that was Pacific Group, Russell? Yeah. Pacific Group's known to be a very group. Of okay. The many groups that we have here in Los Angeles that really offers a very, um, a very strict, if not um, very big way of having to celebrate on um, sobriety in our mm-hmm. community. Yeah. And then for for those um, of the for those of our listeners or those of the people in, in our community that are tuning in, also there's different stages of treatment, right? There's also detox for some individuals that need to detox first before they go into these level of uh, treatments that you all are talking about. So. I think this is a good opportunity to take a break. I think we set the framework on the the world of substance use treatment, recovery, and addiction. Time flies and we're already at the first half, y'all. So thank you for all for joining us for our eighth um, episode of season three. I thank Russell for also opening up the epi- the the intersection into talking more about how substance use affects our particular community, being that we, this is Philippine Exton Wellness. Um, we are going to open that dialogue after the break to dive deeper in where that resonates um, for our allies listening and also for members of our community. I'm talking with guests Cheryl Cambe, Colleen Capistrano, and Russell Ramirez. Feel free to take a quick stretch, refill your water or tea. We'll be right back after this quick break. What do you think of this world now When they promise love and peace Then you see around you Hatred, strife and racial hypocrisy Some telling you how things are soon gonna be You wonder what the future will truly hold Politicians can speak so bold And promise to lead the way If you give them your vote today Then you'll hope and pray Once you change your philosophy, you change your thought pattern Once you change your thought pattern, you change your, your attitude once you change your attitude, it changes your behavior pattern. And then you go on into some action. And you and I have to make a start. And the best place to start is right in the community where we live.
It's the beginning of a new 24 hours of a life that is lived like you My paycheck slim too I spend a whole fridge full of groceries on shoes like you And I regret it all too The difference is every day I'm trying to make a better bamboo Better for my son too And better for the babies in my neighborhood who throw me up a deuce and yell, peace, bamboo. That's three generations all united by the same tattoo. That's why every little soldier where I grew up at hit me up like who your band, where that freedom at. I say I'm working on it. The homie laughed and shot back. I got a hundred on it. I got the homie Nick James on it I might not come close, but I'll always aim for it And hopefully my son might get a taste of it And see your president, and not a money puppet Not the money-loving country-running businessman And maybe we can see democracy that's really listening And the end of all this bickering Call the Philippines, they need to step in Solidarity's the key Resolution ain't gon' come from G.O. Kiwi and me One blood, one love, one bullet, one goal Exact change, I hope I get to put out 20 more This is only the beginning, I'm so far from the finish line You can tell the others I'm here Thank you for holding my place Sorry for the wait, but it's nice to come back to a warm chair Self-untitled, the barrel man is screaming for the kids All I did was say shit already floating in your head Crooked cops, yeah, I know. hungry kids yeah. Bad school, yeah, yeah, I come from the same crooked cops, yeah, hungry kids, bad school, Welcome back, y'all, to Philippine X and Wellness. You were just listening to the first part of Spare Change by Bamboo off of his 2011 album, Exact Change Reloaded. For those of you new to Bamboo, he is the chairman of the Beat Rock Music label partner to Rocky Rivera, a father, a son, and brother to our previous guest, Paula Diacampo, whose episode was great, if, um, and it was on Philippine children's books. You can help support Bam by following him on Instagram at Bambu, B-A-M-B-U, D-E, Pistola, P-I-S-T-O-L-A, or check out the BeatRockMusic.com website. You can find his music on streaming platforms like Apple Music, Spotify, and YouTube. Shout out to our, all of our Philippine X artists and musicians out there laying down the tracks. Returning from our break, I was actually thinking Cheryl lays out some poetry and spoken word too. We'll have, you to, <laughs> we'll have to feed you that sometime. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to out me, yeah, I'm going to out you. <laughs> but that's true. <laughs> Returning from our break, though, we're talking with Cheryl Cambay, Colleen Capistrano, and Russell Ramirez. We'll have to have an episode on that another time, Spoken Word Maybe. and Wellness. <laughs> and we're talking also about substance use disorder and recovery. Now, we were saying from the first half, Russell opened up a great discussion on talking about how substance use looks in our uh, community and how there are very few that he's encountered when it comes to residential treatment and when it comes to just ad addressing our addictions. So let's open up with with our community, our Filipino, Filipinex community. What do you all see are the most common drugs that are currently abused or 
if you want to even talk about the trajectory of your lives. Um, let's start there. I'll take a stab at that one. Um, you know, what I commonly see is marijuana um, in our community. Also saw a lot of alcohol, uh, saw some methamphetamines at some point in people's lives. Um, those are mainly the three um, things that I, I saw the most generation in my generation growing up and um, even till this day, actually. Yeah. All right. Um, go, go ahead. Um, yeah, crystal meth got me into treatment. I'm going to tell you that um, I've been using recreationally for like 25 years before I got sober from it. And then, um, but the last 10 years really sucked, really sucked hard. And, um, but um, when I look at the types of designer drugs that I was exposed to during that time, you know, and I, I'm not going to lie to you, I had a really good time until it became more unmanageable and where all the parts of my life um, started to crumble because of it and also relationships. Um, so I would have to say anything that like crystal meth mm -hmm. and, or in our community, as it's also called Shabu, you know, um, hey, that was the good stuff that also gets people um, that also brings down a lot of families and really tears apart the relationships of our um, of our of the fabric of our Filipino households. Yeah, I don't know if I have anything else to add. I think a lot of times with alcohol use or abuse or disorders, there's a lot of binging too, binging on alcohol. Maybe they're sober the whole week when they could get through work and then the weekends or when they party, you know, it's like living for the weekends. Um, I, I think there's, there's even some gambling. Um, I saw that in our previous generation. I mean, I know our parents would be up all night playing mahjong, you know, and 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 gambling and and going to Pachanga and Paula, you know, to, to the casinos here locally, um, to just have a stab at the 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 tables and you know we see some of that. Um, I think maybe that's our, our our older generation too, like a previous generation. But but yeah, I would say the same thing. I would I would also just again say prescription drugs. A lot of times um, they're you know. Are people actually Colleen mentioned this earlier during the break? People that we know in our community that um, no, they're not going to do any of the illegal, you know, stuff or the marijuana or or, or some of the party drugs, but they sure are going to um, deal dabble in the prescription drugs, take a little bit more of their their pain medication, muscle relaxants, those things that are prescribed by by a doctor, and misuse it. You know, not maybe maybe use a little another dose versus what's what's on the label of, of use. Um, so yeah, I think those, those are, those are pretty common. I think, um, that, that we see, I, I don't know if I'm adding anything to that, but I feel like those yeah. are the most common. I'd have to agree with you all. I mean, I, I, you know, want to personally share that, um, my own dad passed from alcohol related problems throughout the years, uh, just long-term alcohol use. And, you know, when we unpack that, even in our community, I know um, I might have family members listening to this episode might might be um, you know reprimanding me for sharing this, but I think it's really important for our community to also talk about those stories that that carry on from generation to generation. And I know with my dad's personal story, he started drinking in the Philippines and um, Lambanog or just even the local alcohol that was made in his his town was just easy access, right? And then. 
at a young age too. Oh yeah, no, it's not twenty-one years old. It's happening teenage or yeah. younger. Yeah. yeah. So that's where where we start to see the beginnings of of that disorder manifesting. And I don't. I know marijuana use might be more popularized, like with hip hop music or pop culture, right? And even with methamphetamine, some some people say there's a theory that. Um, Shabu got to Hawaii through the Filipinos. I don't know how true that is, but um, I, I know back in, I, I think, what was it, 2005 around then when I went to go to my mom's town in Mindanao, there were already signs up that would um, talk about being careful around Shabu. And that was back in 2005 in the Philippines. So when we're really talking about the substance use uh, these common um, drugs that are uh, abused or that many of our community gets addicted to, we're talking also about that transnational experience, that global experience within our community. I like to kind of go deeper in asking you all, why do you think um, they are using these drugs? I know, Colleen, why is our community using these drugs? Why are they um, abusing it? I know, Colleen, you kind of talked about early on in the in the first half about covering emotional pain. Um, what? Yeah. Are, yeah, feel free to add on to that. So, you know, what alcohol and marijuana do is is they numb your pain. So people often are numbing your feel, you're numbing your feelings, um, and you know it becomes unfortunately a coping skill for some. You know, is to um, use marijuana heavily daily, you know. Um, but I I see a definite correlation with alcohol and marijuana and, um, you know, masculine pain. And pain, you know, it's generational pain that we carry, um, emotional pain, not just physical pain. And I'm talking more about the emotional standpoint from, from it all is the pain that we've carried, you know, whether it's our parents' pain that we're carrying, whether it's you know, childhood trauma that we're carrying. Um, but, you know, a lot of people are walking around in like wounded souls out there. We also talked about the shame factor, right, that we're seeing yeah. in our our community. So some of the reasons why um, we are not seeking help, as Russell talked about in the first half, are because we're trying to hide these things that we're seeing in, in our families, right? Or if a loved one is sick, because really that's what a disorder is, you know, we're so quick to erase that, right, from physical, even if it's physical. Does anyone want to um, add? I feel like some, I mean, was it messages or belief systems in, um, so maybe from the previous generation that taught us that talking about those things was weakness? Um, like Colleen had said earlier about family secrets, um, it it creates barriers for people to not only not reach out for help, but not really be honest with themselves when they do need help. Um, and this could be a whole other episode in terms of talking about intergenerational trauma, colonial trauma. You know, we were a country that was enslaved in our own in our own country. We were taught to be less than in our own country. You know, we were taught to be someone else, or you know, the, the, another country told us how to be in our own country. Um, and I think there's still effects of that in this generation. You know, there is a lot that we're knowing now in the research about epigenetics and intergenerational trauma that goes back 
six, seven generations, you know? So um, I think that's maybe the, on the extreme end of some reasons why um, it's difficult for people to reach out for help or ask for help or admit that you need help um, or even, you know, just keep going down that spiral of maladaptive, you know, coping strategies to deal with that pain. You know, a lot of people in, in general have a difficult time with just sitting in feelings, you know, and just being with, yes, you know, it hurts. Um, and it's and it's something that, you know, maybe something happened it could be circumstantial. It could be um, trauma and emotional pain. Um, and it's very hard to sit in that, you know, to just sit in, in how that feels, how, how to feel, you know, a lot. Uh, we were never taught that. I don't think we're taught that even in this culture, even in, in the U.S. growing up. We're, we're not taught to, how to manage feelings, how to feel, you know, um, how to deal with grief, loss, um, stress. You know, there's not really a lot that's taught on how to do that. So when it comes to alcohol and maybe even marijuana use, that's available to us. That's it's legal, you know, especially here in California with marijuana, it's legal. Um, and those are ways to kind of not feel like Colleen was saying, you know, um, so I think just generally speaking, we have a difficult time in sitting in feelings. Yeah. Also wanted to add, and this is actually a quote from um, one of Cheryl's clinical architects at her program, Dr. Claudia Black. Um, she says, what shame does to addiction is what salt water does for thirst. So it drives addiction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shame drives addiction. And one of my most favorite things, just kind of going back to the twelve-step rooms. One of one of the things about the twelve-step rooms I like, um, if we're talking about shame, is it's it's somewhat of some shame reduction. You know, when you're share when somebody's sharing in the room about what they've gone through, about the depths of their addiction, you're not allowed to cross talk in the room. You're not allowed to shame somebody for that. You actually get applauded for some of the stories that you're telling because you're mirroring what somebody else in the room might have had and talk about like feeling like seen for some of the bad stuff maybe that happened or that you behaviors that you had there's a lot of shame reduction that comes with connecting with others with talking about it with going to therapy these kind of things um come up so i i would just i just want to mention that because i think there's there's something about connection and being seen and being heard that helps with some of that shame reduction yeah when you're talking about shame too, I mean, like, um, yeah, it's actually celebrated in the rooms where like one could actually open up so that I like to say that, like, I, in many ways that um, people need to feel broken so that they could be open to um, many, uh, many of the lessons that could be there and to be open to many people's stories, because there could be at least one person in that room that will identify. And if you could reach that one person in that room, then um, it's still a success. Even if you, um, if uh, even if the person in that room doesn't identify with all the story, but if it's that, if that is just that one lesson that keeps him sober, just one more day, it allows for that type of boss, like that type of positivity to come out. Um, you know, I'm gonna have to allude back to when, uh, when I got sent back in 2014, I actually made a comment to my parents. I go like, hey, you know what? Um, can you imagine if I was sent back during the time of your birthday and um, to the, to go and get sober? I, you know, like I didn't use while I was there, but can you imagine having to be, be accused of being an addict there, um, being an addict during that time and to be possibly shot because, yeah, um, of course, the people, um, that were associated with people who were, um, on drugs. And that breaks my heart knowing that that's still a discussion. And when posed to my parents, 
I I'm like I go like they were applauding his decision to want to deal with that um to deal with that issue in our home country like that. And I go like I just want to say that is painful to hear, knowing that that could be somebody else's son or somebody else's daughter that didn't get a chance for access to care. You know, and I think it really stems from the fact that we as Filipino Americans really don't access to care knowing that it's available to them. And the reason why I say that is because whenever I come across those Filipino clients that um, when I give them a picture of what it is like to seek care while you are accessing as an American, while you're accessing as a Californian, right? Um, people don't know what, um, what opportunities they could have when they get into the system where they get access housing finally where they get access mental health and with low or no cost you know so you don't have to you don't have to go to a pricey um like um like recovery center in order for you to um to find access to care but you know what you just need to access it because you know you need it and i can't tell you how many times the people that are repeat i call them repeat offenders are just repeat people who come into um, these treatment centers sometimes they've been there maybe two three four maybe more than a handful of times because they know it's available to them and many of them are caucasian many of them are just other demographic groups that know that's available to them and maybe they're doing it for the short term they're doing it for the long term maybe they're doing it to abuse the system but at the same time they're still using the system you know what i mean so um maybe that at the same of it but when you know that people who really need it who really wanted such as myself who needed despair and who didn't need a second time around to feel like, you know, I had to learn this lesson again. I think it's really important to know that people are accessing this. And I really, really, really want to impart to our Filipino community that it's time to actually start using this and to start really understanding it and not to feel ashamed that people are using it, even just for mental health, which is, um, which is something everybody can do, you know? Yeah, no, I think this is a good transition uh, for our community. We're actually recording this episode a couple, uh, a day after Mental Health Awareness Day. And um, as you end on that note, talking about mental health, Russell, I know Colleen and Cheryl, you also mentioned at the agencies that you work with or your companies, you also address mental health. So when it comes to unpacking substance use, substance use disorder within our community, what do you think are the most common underlying mental health challenges that our community are are facing and using substance use to cover? Yeah, the common ones really depression, anxiety, um, bipolar disorder, because that has a lot to do with mood. Um, I think, you know, even, even um, clients that we see that might not be addicts, to mm-hmm. the, the the dependence end where they meet those criteria for um, substance use disorder, but they're using substances to manage what's really happening in anxiety disorder, uh, you know, depression. Um, and that's why they come to the door because that use, again, starts to escalate, tolerance goes up, and then they see themselves starting to get dependent. So there's a lot of that actually where people are using substances to manage mental health issues. Um but yeah, there's there's a lot of common. I mean, depression, anxiety is probably the most common that bring people to the door of, of, of care. Hmm. Yeah, we all we also see uh, with eating disorders um, mm-hmm. where I currently work at. You know, 
OCD um, mm, and eating yeah. disorders, um, mm-hmm. anxiety, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. you should have seen it during COVID. I've never, in 20 plus years I've been working in treatment, never seen waiting lists as long as I've had for people trying to access care for eating disorder treatment mm-hmm. or their um, eating disorder just raging out of control during uh, the pandemic. I, it was this alarming, like three, four month wait list at some programs for adolescents and adults to access care um, for eating disorder treatment. So, you know, it's never just one thing with maladaptive coping skills. Mm-hmm. It's a multitude of like playing whack-a-mole of um, different things that pop up. You may, Sometimes when, um, you know, someone gets sober, some other things might start to pop up, like sex, sex addiction or uh, eating disorders or, you know, definitely start to feel with anxiety and uh, or depression. So there's a lot of co-occurring disorders with um, substance use. Mm. Now, we have some people that are tuning in that know a loved one, know a friend that is currently experiencing addiction, and they don't even know how to approach them. They don't even know how to initiate this conversation with that loved one who may not even think they have a problem. So um, for for you experts in this episode, where does someone even begin in seeking help or treatment for their loved one? And whoever wants to go first, let's, let's do random. <laughs> yeah, this one's, um, it's a tough one because, um, especially for somebody who might be impaired, it's very difficult to have a ra- rational conversation with them about they might have an issue. I think sometimes, too, um, people will be so afraid out of fear about confronting somebody that they might even come off a little confrontational to where that actually shuts everything down for the person that that needs help, where if they don't even want to hear it. They'll shut them out. Um, I think it's a matter. It, it could be several conversations. It could be talking about how I care about you. It could be um, bringing in other family members that care about this person. Um, it could also just be about, you know, showing up. Sometimes, though, it, it could also be about setting boundaries. Like maybe we, you know, our, the, the loved ones that are struggling in addictive behaviors, not all the time do they want help as much as you want them to get help. And a lot of times it doesn't work if you want them to get help more than they do so that that's a really tough conversation and a difficult you know question to answer because um you know you we got to do our best to wrap our our, our our arms around those loved ones that we're trying to help especially when it comes to mental health issues as well um but i would i would say to not come from a confrontational standpoint or a shaming standpoint you know they already feel a lot of shame about what's happening and to come off with saying, stop that, don't do that, pick yourself up, what's wrong with you, you know, from that standpoint is not, I would say, not a way to, to um, you know, intervene on somebody. Anyone else like to add? Yeah, like interventions are like an invitation to change, right? It's um, a way, you know, being in the industry for a long time, like Cheryl, we know a lot of interventionists, you know, their approaches to to trying to um, not only get the identified uh, patient help, but also to help the family system. Because that's what it's really about. Once you start to create change in the family system and the family 
holds boundaries and um you know the then the identified patient won't have any choice but to get better you give them that that opportunity to change and and just wrap it up in a in a bow like hey that that's one thing i, I mean i'm not going to talk about the intervention process but um uh, right now but it, it it's really it's a family system issue it's not just the one person needing to get help but the whole family system needs to change and rest oh go ahead uh yeah hey you know what that's how I got into treatment. So I need a good intervention and a good kick in the ass and actually do it. And um, I'm not afraid to admit that um, it was a way through and not a way around it um, because I had to realize for myself that I was hurting people, even though I was high as hell during the whole time. And um, and but the thing is, deep down under underneath it all, it was one of those processes that allowed me to see that. Um, when I was able to finally get some sleep that, um, damn it, I did actually find a way out of having to feel the weight of having to not know what to do. So like having to be in, um, having to have my family and friends around me to be more in my face, you know, more in a, in a more loving way, even though it didn't feel like it, because maybe the wake will call somebody needs to figure out a way through it. And I always like to say that, you know what, treatment wasn't my choice, but it was definitely my choice to want to stay in treatment and to figure out a way for me to um, figure out a way to finally have a life. Um, hey, you know, an intervention, not everybody's ready for one. Some families are just not ready to be in that space yes. that um, to you want to do it differently because they're um, because of whatever kind, maybe the mother is not ready to want to change the locks on the door maybe the father is just ready to give up or whatever the dynamic is but having to spell what an intervention looks like it's a really important discussion one must have with their family members in order for them to see hey is this a real viable um, a viable way for our family to go in that direction i just want to also say that sometimes even a, a introduction to somebody that you know is in tree um that who's had some recovery time and invite them to that party or invite them to that dinner um, with that person that, you know, um, could use some connection because as Cheryl mentioned, you know, we're, we're all, I, Cheryl mentioned earlier that, you know, and the opposite of addiction is like a lack of connection. You know, people are not connecting and they're isolating in this space, either mentally, physically, emotionally, and having to, um, having a broker, a uh, an opportunity to have dinner or coffee with that person that's normally not to see to see whether or not a conversation come up um, could be a really organic way of having to, you know, make this an opportunity for them to open up. So if you know somebody's really suffering inside or just doesn't see it for themselves, maybe having to change the um the temperature of the room by adding more people in the mix that you know who have gone through it really will um will make things more a little bit more accessible and a lot less confrontational but sometimes a little confrontation i have to add is a little it is a good way of having to wake and jog um and jog a person up to to see that hey you know what we need to change things around and that um there's no there's no simpler way to do it than to just have these card conversations maybe in the privacy of your own home first so was there russell a follow-up to that was there a pivotal point or an event that happened that sparked in you that you were ready to seek treatment and seek help? Oh, um, 
gosh, there are too many, there are too many um, events that, that had clued me into as a, like, you need to, you need to figure it out. But I know that like, I'd like to say that my higher power made, uh, allowed me to figure out these lessons at, at the age of 41, you know? And I like to think that there's no real, there's no real good time until those lessons have to land on their own. Because I was definitely wasn't open to it at thirty one. I definitely wasn't open um open up to the having discussion at twenty one because I was loving I was loving it all. But you know, at forty one, it happened when it needed to happen because like it needed that time for me to become more desperate to want to live a different way, you know. And if there's no level of desperation on that point where one hasn't really hit their true bottom, then any effort that that person, any family member, any work meet, any boss. Any other person in their family circle that's trying to reach them, if they haven't reached their their true bottom, then um, maybe they need to reach that bottom before them before their lessons that actually hit. Unfortunately, and hopefully for some of them, they will have an opportunity to leave that bottom. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, they say addiction ends in two ways: that are death or jail, hmm. or institutions. Yeah, institutions. Yeah. Well, there's consequences. Yeah, yeah. We were talking before the break about levels of treatment, and one of the things I talked about was was detox. Maybe um, if you all that are familiar with the process can talk about when when someone is ready to seek that help, what does that look like? Yeah, I would say it's a matter of understanding how much you're using at the time that you're wanting to stop. I would not suggest for, say, a long-term alcoholic who's been using uh alcohol for a long time maybe they're older in age to stop cold turkey without being seen by a doctor without being monitored by a doctor without prescriptions from the doctor that can help with that detox process because there could be risk of seizures risk of um you know heart issues things that can happen because the body's so dependent on the substance use that um it's not advise to to stop on your own that's the same even with um the benzos that colleen was talking about earlier the medications that um in long-term use xanax um some of the benzodiazepines for uh, prescribed for um for uh different things like um anxiety or even some of the adhd drugs i, I don't think they should be stopped cold turkey it should be in a monitored situation either in um a hospital or in some of our programs in residential treatment can detox safely um, somebody, but it would be monitored by a doctor always. So um, depending on how much the use is, like inventory on how much they're using at the time, mm -hmm. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that on their own. I, I wouldn't suggest to do that on their own. Yeah, it's definitely you need something to seek medical help for when you're, depending on what you're detoxing on. So yeah, withdrawals can be very painful. Very painful and dangerous, and that's also how even uh, temporarily temporarily withdrawing some um, addicts also return to use, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because we'll get the shakes. It's you know once the body figures out, wait a minute, I'm not on the substance. Um, they have to continue to use. Um, that's also a sign of addiction and and substance use disorder when you have withdrawals from not using. Yeah, for some it yeah. could be a long arduous journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, trying to access care when it comes to detox. I come from the medic, um, the medical, um, um, space when it comes to having to get into detox. And unfortunately, um, even within the last few years that I've been working in this space, 
they'll definitely detox. Um, if you only have Medi-Cal, meaning that's the only type of insurance that you have, it's definitely for alcohol and for heroin, um, any type of heroin and other complications. Unfortunately, um, last time I know, you're not detoxing based upon if you just have crystal meth. So like um, most, um, it's definitely changed the last few years. And unfortunately, like having to seek other outlets, having a having experts like Colleen and Cheryl to actually know what your other options are, are definitely, um, you'll need to actually have to consult with some other people that will actually see what you can detox from in order for you to get in to those Medi-Cal pro programs. Yeah, Medi-Cal is the state-funded insurance here in California. It's like Medicaid in other states. Um, so that's what, just a definition. <laughs> now we have individuals that are ready for treatment. Um, you mentioned, Cheryl, some can go through insurance and others, if they want a higher level of um, like maybe inpatient residential treatment, they might have to pay out of pocket. Mm -hmm. um, for Colleen, you, I know you also work with facilities. But also oftentimes, too, with insurance companies, it's a little trick just working with insurance companies is they want to see that you have failed in a lower level of care before they authorize higher levels of care. So if you're like, you know, um, going to an I IOP, an intensive outpatient program or a partial program first, <laughs> then if you um, are continuing to fail in that level of care, then they would um, authorize a higher level of care like residential treatment. So, you know, in the treatment space, you have intensive IOP, which is, um, you know, a few days a week, um, nine hours a week. With PHP, it's called partial hospitalization, and that's typically um, at least 12 hours a week, um, sometimes five days a week. Um, then you have residential care where you're staying somewhere for 30 days, and then you'll have inpatient like um, or a hospital um, type stay. So those are the different levels of care. And then the lowest, lowest level of care going backwards is just outpatient therapy. So um, those are the different levels of care and insurance companies want to see that you have failed in the lower levels of care before they authorize, you know, residential type treatment. Yeah. yeah. Insurance companies don't like to pay. <laughs> yeah. Well, healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. And I also want to say that there's some recovery houses that actually offer scholarships. Mm -hmm. So what that looks like is that sometimes people apply to get into these uh, places where there may be a nominal fee to actually get in. And even sometimes that fee um, is a little too much for them at that moment. But there is a promise or a statement that they will pay it back upon um, reaching some type of treatment complete for a later time. But there are scholarship programs that could get you into some of the other recovery houses, especially in the ones in Hollywood, in the ones in the Los Angeles, um, Los Angeles area that will offer a scholarship for those who really need the care and may have been kicked out of other treatment centers that won't take them back anymore because they just weren't receptive to the care that they were given when they were just going on Medi-Cal alone. So like there's always going to be an opportunity for one to get care. It's just a matter of how um, if they could get sober enough, long enough for them to access it and to apply for these programs that allow them to be um, to be in those programs. And just a shout out over a program actually that we, Cheryl and I supported the other weekend was uh, Miriam's House, which was um, sober living for women and their children. So there are resources for, for families, for women. Free low costs. Yeah. Yeah. Free low costs. And for Tarzana Treatment Center, thank you for that resource, Colleen. Uh, yeah. For that, for Tarzana Treatment Center, Russell, do you accept walk-ins or how do, how do you get your clients? Yeah. Over? 
for people to actually sleep out on the front, um, on the front in order for them to, they're desperate enough to want to get a bed. Mm-hmm. You know, um, obviously the best way is to make help an addict get, um, get on a phone and to do the first intake appointment over the phone so that they can secure that, um, that, that bed for a later date. And unfortunately there is a waiting list and sometimes, you know what? I, and it's, it's happened more often than you would think. Um, a bed just opens up because somebody just leaves and that person just gets lucky, you know? But, um, if you really want to help out that addict or you want to help out that person get a bed and they're, um, and they've had a really bad bed over the weekend, you better start Monday because come Friday, um, at five o'clock is the worst time when people start begging for beds to get in there. Mm -hmm. But it's, but it's happened before that they come in on a Friday and they land some, they land an open bed and they're in, but it's, um, but it's it's a gamble, you know. And when you talk about people's lives, um, a weekend is um, sometimes a, too long enough for um, for people to wait in order for them to seek help or they just give up. And we're looking at providing hope. And if we could provide hope and a place or a bed commitment for them to stay, so that they could stay just sober enough for them to make a next better decision the next day, that's what we're hoping for. But sometimes it could be rough. You know, I'm not gonna lie. Wow, this was such a heavy topic, y'all, to just even unpack and and talk about where it hits in our community. For all of you that are working in this industry, I'm just curious, what keeps you going and inspired to continue to work in this industry? And what are your tools for wellness? How do you not develop a disorder of your own, for lack of a better term? Um, so... I think what motivates me the most is seeing that change. Like on the front end where I work is when the the person's coming into treatment. They're they're accessing the care. They're in a crisis. They're they're they want help, and then finding out what happens on the back end when they do go through that treatment. They get that change. They start a new life. That's what is the best thing that keeps me motivated. I could put all everything else that work comes with work aside if I remember. That I had a, a a little a little maybe um you know moment with that person in their recovery process and it and it helped them spark some change and it it, it could happen it it I see it every day where people decide to do another life and and create a new life and live a different way and that's the best because you got to take some part in that you got to participate in that moment with them um, so that's what keeps me going. Another thing that keeps me going is that I don't know what else to do. This is the only field I've ever been in. I, I, you know, I, I don't know where I would go, honestly. I'd probably have to retire because I don't, I, this is the only field I've been in since I got out of undergrad. Um, and then wellness wise, myself, I do need to get back into the gym. Sometimes work gets so crazy and busy. Um, but I do like being out in nature. I like riding my bike. My husband and I like to ride bikes. Um, and, camp and be outside um i say this to colleen a lot we pay a lot of taxes here in california you better you know enjoy the state of california and get outside you know um and i I also like spending time with my dog something with with an animal my my dog just calms my nervous system so and be with friends and family of course yeah wellness wellness that part yeah to go next on this i can go next um miracles happen every day you know and being in this field you know 20 plus years as well it's like you've seen you've seen the miracles happen and that's what keeps me 
in it is is helping people get to a place where they can find help, find resources for for help, give them hope. Um, you know, and I also think you know recovery is not just about being sober or um, the absence of not using drugs or alcohol, but it's getting to your authentic self and discovering who you are, letting go of who you're not. So it's you know the journey, um, yeah. not the destination. Wow. Uh, but it's a beautiful process, you know, to see people change and get the help that they need um, has been so fulfilling and so rewarding um, on so many levels. Um, and in terms of wellness for myself, um, I do a lot of self-care in terms of acupuncture, massage, um, Pilates. So a lot of my self-care takes in that physical form um, can be in connection because when you're in connection then um, with others, um, then you're not going to use maladaptive coping skills. Um, so being connected with others is really part of my self-care as well. Uh, being outside, as Cheryl said, we like to play outside. We're in nature. We're actually going to Big Bear, you know, <laughs> in a few weekends uh, to be in nature. So, um, you know, playing, you know, playing outside um, and, and um, you know, just really, really taking time to, to love yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, for me, you know, when it comes to, um, having to figure out the reasons why I remain in this industry, Hey, it fell on me when I least expected it. I didn't know I was going to find a niche in this place and we find a team that really not just celebrated my own sobriety and my own wins, but when I found a team that really what that got me open, that opened me up the opportunity of doing groups and, um, and working with the community in a way that I didn't think I would ever, I ever before, um, one could spark change in others because, um, it, they, um, because those same people spark change in me. So like it allowed me to look at myself differently and that's what I want to do is really carry on that message that, um, that I wanted to pay it back in a way that I didn't, um, I, I never wait. I never thought I would actually do before. And that, um, and I'm a guy of momentum. I really like, um, I'm, th things are going in this pattern. I really want to just keep going in this, um, this industry as long as I can. Let's see what else I can uncover and learn. Um, as far as wellness, Hey, you know what this I haven't taken a vacation until this year. So like, you know, plan trip was something I um I wanted to do for myself not to just to say thank you um to the people that um that helped me get to this point because I took trips with them this year um and when it comes to having to spend some really good time having good food and just making planned efforts to want to connect with them and to see what people are doing I make those connections now on a deeper, more soulful effort, um, level now than I did before. So, hey, plan vacations and um, diversify my workout because you know what? Just as Cheryl mentioned, you know what? I, I like going to the gym. So, like having to go back to the gym and making sure that <laughs> that's all. No, well, you know what? It's <laughs> like, it's the gym. It's pretty far because, well, you know, um, having a having to make this fun and to make sure that, you know, there's, um, there's that physical outlet for, for myself and hopefully, um, with you guys too. 
We see those muscles popping out of your shirt. I know, right? <laughs> Put it in somewhere. over there. <laughs> so for our community, if they have other questions, if they'd like to contact you, um, if you do, if do you have any other events or, or classes or workshops that you'd like to shout out? Now is your time. So, Russell, let's start with you since you ended that one. Hey, you know what? Um, <laughs> thanks. Um, the program I'm actually working on at um, Tarzan Achievement Center is actually Prep for the Future. Um, we're here to incentivize HIV testing because knowing your status is basically whole health. And um, we're trying to make sure that testing isn't stigmatized anymore. Um, there's a lot of people who don't go regular testing for some reason, and I'm trying to be part of that movement that allows HIV testing to be a normalized thing um, and that um, to eliminate the stigma that is surrounded by it. Um, incentivize. This is how it looks like for my program. For every person that you refer, um, not only do you get $10 for that person coming in, but they get $10 for coming in to get tested. And it becomes a chain. So if we could start spreading the word because you care enough to want to know um, that they're, that a loved one, that a neighbor, that a friend, that a girl or a guy in your group or a they or them just wants to know their status, hey, you know what? Come and get tested because that's what it's all about. Um, so that's what I'm working on at Tarzana Achievement Center. I'll have the link um, provided to you, Cheryl, so that you could post it um, so that people who are in the Southern California, um, but especially in the San Fernando um, Valley area, could contact me and my partner, Heidi, and then we could get you on our docket so we could um, tell you more about our program. And who knows, we might be at the next Pride Festival, um, but at big events in Southern California, just to spread the word that HIV tested, that things should be a normal thing and that we're here to push PrEP to those who need it and to be exposed to um, to those medications that allow you to not become HIV positive. And on a last note, um, many of the target audiences we're trying to reach is from 12 to 24, because I know that demographic needs to have this education so that they know they don't have to live in fear when it comes to getting HIV, because we know we have a solution to this problem. So like, if you could start those conversations up at a younger age, where they're now starting to understand those um, those things about their bodies and where parents can now receive access because we do provide that education for them too, for them to start having those nice connected discussions at home so that they know that there is a solution to having to not become HIV um, positive if they don't have to and that there is medication and there, there are solutions that are having this discussion at home. So that's what I'm all about. Part for the future at Tarzana Treatment Center. Okay. Do you have any contact information that you want to share too, Russell? Any social media account handles, uh, websites, I, I, email addresses? QR code available on a flyer that I'll send to you and hopefully you can post it. Okay. I'll, um, a link for that for you to um, have post to our audience. Outside. Okay. How about you, Colleen? Um, I There are a lot of resources out there, free resources, educational resources, um, you know, in some communities, like in the South Bay, they have like parent support groups uh, in certain um, in certain areas. I don't know any off of hand, but I, I will send you some. Uh, but there are a lot of like support groups out there, re free resources, educational trainings, um, educate free education. I know Cheryl does something at Torrance as well. You guys sponsor like on a monthly basis, like or free lectures about addictive disorders, addiction, trauma, all the whole gamut. So 
um, there's a lot of free education out there, and I'll, I'll get you those resources. All right. And in contact information that you uh, feel comfortable sharing? Contact information. Anyone um, has questions? Yeah. My email address um, is colleen at yourpsychsupport.com, and I can send that information to you. Um, yeah, colleen at yourpsychsupport. And, you know, part of my job in the community has been helping people regardless of where to get the where to get them help you know just finding helping somebody find any type of resource they need in their community is um you know basically what i like to do or what i what i do for a living too okay cheryl take us away yes yeah, so you can find me on linkedin cheryl cambay um and then my program that i work for is meadows behavioral health care the meadows has been a treatment center out of Arizona. We're grown and we're grown in different states now, um, but we've been around for over 45 years. You could look at the the main website, which is themeadows.com um, or Google Meadows Behavioral Healthcare. We've got a lot of programs under our belt. Um, and then, yeah, and social media, you could, uh, my my uh, work social media handle, uh, IG is um, share, uh, C. Cambay Meadows. And then um, my name, in Facebook, but Get me on LinkedIn. I'm not super active on on the Facebook and the and the IG, but but LinkedIn, I I post a lot about work and the the resource that Colleen was talking about. I do a monthly webinar that's free um, for it's all about addiction. It's called the Frontiers of Addiction Lecture Series. It's in a collaboration with Thelma McMillan Center, which is an intensive outpatient program out of Torrance Memorial Hospital, Torrance, California. And um, Discovery Behavioral Health, which is another um, group of programs. But you could find the um, list of uh, the calendar of um, of webinars on Thelma McMillan Center website and under professional events. Our next one is next Tuesday, um, the 17th. Um, one of our speakers from the Meadows actually is speaking, Dr. Lawrence Heller, about NARM, which is an approach for trauma treatment called Neuroeffective um, Relational Model. But it's a lot of different topics, addiction, mental health. Um, it's free and anybody can can log on um, every third Tuesday of the month is when we do it. And that was October 17th, right? Because we're recording it. Probably October, yes. Yeah. About, yeah. No, October. all good. So this day. will have passed. No, it's okay. This will pass by the time this um, episode has aired. But right. for the rest of you. Every third Tuesday of the month. All right. Yeah. yeah. And thank you. If somebody needs yeah. an you know, we, we could definitely collectively find them some type of resource. Yeah, if it's not with our with our programs, we can connect them for sure. I'm also um, on the the board for the Women's Association of Addiction Treatment. Been on a board member for about 20 years. And, you know, any type of resource you need for addictive disorders, we, we can definitely help find a resource for you. So, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know what? I'll also add my on my Instagram, too. Um, you'll see it in a link too, so that you could actually, if you need to DM me, because if you have specific questions in terms of not just my program at Tarzana, but then you could also talk to me about recovery and what recovery could look like if you have a loved one that needs to, um, you need to want to get in touch with. And I think that goes the same with my colleagues over here. We're here to connect with you as a community to let you know that we could, um, we could have that conversation with you or a loved one or a family member that needs a little bit more insight on what that look, what that could look like. Russell, do you mind um, sharing that your Instagram uh, moniker? So for some of the um, our community that's listening to this episode. Yeah, it's Rusty. That's R-U-S-S-T-E-E-1-I-N-K. 
and that's on Instagram. Perfect. Thank you all, really, Cheryl, Colleen, and Russell, for talking to our community about substance use disorder and recovery. I see so many offshoot episodes coming from this. I know, Cheryl, we want to probably explore process um, disorders with you or addiction. Colleen, eating disorders for sure. And then Russell, HIV education and treatment. So you all may just see them all again on this platform, talking about these specific topics as we dive deeper. Would also love to talk about codependency. Oh, right. yes. in our in our community. All right, Colleen, you got it. Codependency and eating disorders are separate episode for them. Oh yeah, that's a whole podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, we thank you all though really for your dedication and your service um, to helping folks towards recovery. We look forward to witnessing your journeys unfold and. Deeply appreciate your contributions to our community's wellness. Yeah. <laughs> and to our community, look out for our next episode in December. We're going to feature Diane Denga Palagana, Palagana, sorry if I butchered your name, and explore her life as an MS warrior, multiple sclerosis. So this episode will air during our Wellness Wednesdays on December 13th. As we close, we'd like to acknowledge once again our guest speakers, Cheryl Cambe, Colleen Capistrano, and Russell Ramirez, our graphic designer and beat maker for our opening and closing track, Richie, related to Russell, Bamboo, raining from Oakland, California, by way of Watts, for consent to use your track, Make Change, Spare Change, that you heard a snippet of during our break. Our advisors, Allison De La Cruz, Rian De Los Reyes, and Safo Tio Loco. Our community partners, <clears throat> we're thankful for um, your collaboration on that last episode as we talked about estate wellness and financial planning, this Filipino-American life. And congratulations, by the way, TFAL, on your 200th episode. SoCal Filipinos and Trek Table and all of our community members for your shares and support. As always, we'll share more about our guest speakers' offerings on our Instagram stories and highlights for permanent access with any of their upcoming events. Be sure to follow us at X in Wellness on Instagram, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and on X at X, the letter N, well, followed by the letters N and S. We are also on Threads. Don't forget to continue to hit the subscribe button on our X in Wellness YouTube channel. Thank you always for believing in us. Be well, everyone. Continue to take care of yourselves and each other. Daghang salamat. Salamat. Thank you.